Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall with my co-host, Bruce Weiner. And today we have a fabulous guest for you today, and that is Chris Putnam Walkerly. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And today, if you are familiar with her already, you may know that she does a lot of work in the space of charitable giving and altruism. She's written a book called Delusional Altruism, which we're going to dig into a little bit today. But today we're talking about how to transform your philanthropy and create transformational change, which is something that she talks about on a regular basis. And so if you're in the space of saying, I am giving and I want to do the most good with that gift and I want to transform the world and make a great difference how do you make sure that your giving is actually accomplishing that goal and that you're not just giving to make yourself feel like you're giving well, but not sure what's happening on the other end of that gift? So today we are talking with Chris and she advises philanthropists who want to achieve greater clarity, impact, and joy with their giving. And we're going to talk today about why, how you give matters. Um, we're probably going to touch a little bit on her seven delusions of altruism that hinder your impact and how to transform your giving to create lasting change. So um, those are just a few tidbits. We're going to hear most of it from you, Chris, though. So thank you so much again for being willing to join us today. Absolutely. So Chris, let's just talk a little bit about what your work has been. I'm going to let you share just your background and how did you get into this space of helping philanthropists? Great question. So I had always wanted to work in the nonprofit sector and ended up getting a master's degree in social work, thinking that I was going to run and lead nonprofit social service agencies. And instead, I took some courses in grad school on program evaluation and learned how to evaluate the impact and the effectiveness of nonprofits and the services they provide. And thought that was really interesting because, of course, we always want to continuously improve and how do you ensure that the work that you're doing is successful? If it's not working, how do you make it better? And that led me to work at Stanford University after I graduated. I was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs throughout California. And this was entirely funded by one foundation, the California Wellness Foundation. And uh, it was their first kind of foray into philanthropy. They were a new foundation. And they were really trying to change uh, our understanding of youth violence from a criminal justice kind of perspective to more of a public health and prevention perspective. How do you prevent violence and youth violence in the first place? And so I, I really thought about, you know, if you're a funder, if anything, you have money, you have wealth, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to deploy that wealth effectively. And, but, you know, they were really smart. They brought in top experts. They looked at research, best practices, and really created a great strategy and approach to trying to change uh, and end youth violence in California. And so I thought, well, that would be interesting. Maybe I should go work for a foundation. So I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. That's the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP. And, um, you know, learned a lot about strategic philanthropy and really making a difference, and then began doing consulting on the side 
and then was asked to do some consulting by Charles Schwab's Family Foundation. And that led to other opportunities. Learned that I liked consulting and philanthropy. And that launched my consulting career about just over 20 years ago. Mm. That's fascinating. And so it's interesting how the path of our life leads us into a unique space and maybe not necessarily where you thought you were going, but probably even more profound and impactful than you had initially envisioned. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny. I have two very interesting memories from childhood about philanthropy and consulting. One was watching the news with my mom. I was probably eight years old. And there was a philanthropist being interviewed on television. And I thought, well, what is that, mom? And she explained it to me, you know, somebody with a lot of money who gives it away. And I remember thinking, that sounds good. (laughs) I'd like to do that. And then the other was, I don't know, sometime in high school, I just had this like thought cross my mind out of nowhere that said, someday you'll be a consultant. Mm -hmm. And then I was filled with dread. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Like, And it was more like, how could I possibly do that? Like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Like, it was this kind of fear and dread that overcame me. But, you know, here I am, you know, decades later, and I love it. Well, thankfully, you overcame that. And (laughs) it sounds like you're doing some profound work in this space. So over the 20 years, how has your practice evolved or transformed? Yeah, my practice has evolved uh, quite a a bit. And, you know, one of the reasons I enjoy being an entrepreneur, as I'm sure many in your audience will appreciate, is you, you have a lot of control and you can, you know, change and ebb and flow, make decisions, try things out, stop doing them, start doing them. Yeah. So one of the interesting things is I began my practice during the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. Mm. And so, you know, one of the greatest challenges at the time was our assets and wealth is growing so fast. How can we possibly give away enough money? Mm. So we need to hire consultants. So I joke that my business development strategy at the time was checking my email and answering the phone because there was so much of a need for advice and guidance and support in how to give away money well. You know, you can give away money, but to do it well is a different story. I did a lot of work uh, initially helping funders and donors to develop um, foundations and in particular kind of design funding initiatives, help them identify which issues and causes they cared about. And then, you know, based on that, how do you, how do you make a difference? Like, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? So if you care about ending homelessness or you care about substance abuse treatment, like, okay, great. What does that actually mean? And who are you going to fund? And substance abuse treatment for who? Is it for women with kids? Is it for youth, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So really kind of helping them unpack that and also bringing in, you know, what does the research say? What are the needs in your community? What are best practices in this area? Who could you partner with? Um, it's really evolved over time. Uh, I do a lot. Now I really focus on a few things. One is strategic planning overall, strategy development and strategy implementation for, you know, corporate giving programs, uh, of Fortune 500 companies for grant-making foundations, family foundations, but even, you know, families and individuals as they're trying to, you know, create their giving strategy, create a giving plan, you know, what does that look like? Uh, I also provide a lot of coaching and advising. So most of my clients now retain me as a private coach to help them navigate their philanthropic journey and help them get clarity on what they're trying to accomplish and help hold them accountable to accomplishing it and really being a sounding board to them because it it can be a very lonely place to be. 
Um, either you're the executive director, perhaps, of a foundation, and it's lonely because you you know sometimes you can't talk to your staff, you can't talk to your board. Who do you talk to? But also, um, you know, for a ultra high net worth donor, somebody who maybe sold a business or has inherited wealth, it can feel lonely because you can feel a lot of guilt with having all that wealth that maybe you didn't expect to have. And so, you know, what do you do with it, and how do you? deploy it well. There's not a lot of people you can necessarily talk to about that who aren't, you know, asking you for money or telling you, you know, you have no problems. <laughs> what do you have to worry about? Right. So what I find what I've I can relate to all of this what you're what you're talking about. <clears throat> and we actually just had another person on uh, Mike Kitko, who's a uh executive coach to millionaires. He says he makes millionaire, he turns millionaires into happy millionaires. And uh, part of it is the way you're talking about the guilt situation. And then we also had uh, Rabbi Lapon on and, uh, you know, he he has a different take on, you know, the, 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 the role of philanthropy. In other words, um, he doesn't necessarily think you have to give to be a good steward of your money, although he it's not that he doesn't want people to give. He doesn't think that that's one of the goals of making money is so that you you give away money, and um, because that that is something that a lot of people with wealth do because they do they do feel guilty, so they just want to give it away. And I think what you bring to the table is: are you giving it away effectively? So, what do you think is one of the main mainstays of giving? effectively and and what is ineffective giving and what is effective giving? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So really, I'll talk a little bit about the book because the premise of the book, Delusional Altruism, is really about how donors of all sizes and types are generally genuine in their altruism. They really want to make a difference, want to change the world, want to help others, but are getting in their own way and preventing themselves from having the impact that they seek. And so, um, so part of the challenge with effectiveness is it's hard to be effective when you're getting in your own way. And I'm sure you see this with your clients and I'm sure all the business, you know, folks listening to this can relate. Yeah. So one of the challenges you mentioned guilt, um, and one of the challenges is a scarcity mindset. And this is, uh, when donors, um, you know, believe that maintaining a Spartan operation for themselves or their grantees, the nonprofits they're supporting, somehow equates to delivering greater value in the community. And so by this, I mean, with preventing um, the investment in yourself as a donor, as a funder, in terms of your learning, getting the support and advice that you need, but also preventing investment in the nonprofit in the sense of um, believing that the nonprofit should you know, operate with a shoestring budget, Um, All the money needs to go help people and it shouldn't go to their quote unquote overhead uh, or administration or salaries or fundraising or finance or whatever. Uh, And to me, this is really a misguided mindset because, uh, you know, if you want to be, if you want a nonprofit to be successful, just like a business, it requires investment in your growth and in your success. You want the top talent. You want um, them to have a great fund development apparatus so they can raise funds, you know, diversified fundraising. You want them to have a great financial management system, a fabulous board of directors. The ability to evaluate yourself, uh, to make course corrections and make improvements, 
And, you know, all of these things are necessary for nonprofit organizations to be successful and all of them require investment, right? Mm -hmm. Requires money. And so I think, you know, to, to have the, make the greatest difference as a funder, you need to be able to invest in that kind of capacity and to be the best philanthropist you can be, you need to invest in yourself and your own capacity and learning. And so part of that, um, I believe is kind of what I call an abundance mindset, but, you know, guilt is very much related to that because I think a lot of people of wealth, you know, feel guilty. They feel guilty because maybe they inherited the wealth and didn't earn it and therefore don't deserve it. Or maybe they, you know, made more money than they ever thought they'd make in their lifetime, sold a business and, you know, suddenly have wealth um, and feel guilty that they don't deserve it. And, um, and that other, you know, looking at wealth or income inequality. But the, the problem with that is it really holds funders back from a mindset perspective. It often causes people to shrink, uh, to kind of um, mask their talent mm. and mask their ability to make a difference in the lives of others. And so to me, you know, it's hard to be effective if you're feeling guilty and you're holding back yourself and you're holding back your investment in the nonprofit organizations that you support. I think this was profound as I was reading your book, because I think there can be that perspective that is driven by guilt and fear and scarcity. And it is this this confusion that I think Rabbi Daniel Lapin would agree with and, and talks about. He says, you know, the business in the first place is service to mankind and to the world. And you are not taking money from society. You are giving something that's more valuable. And the exchange of that is that you are profitable. And so the business owner who has created wealth in the first place needs to recognize that they are a tremendous gift to the world and to society just by having their business in the first place. And so they've created this value and the value is good and they're they're actualizing their potential. And so that I think is a part of that mindset shift from the scarcity to abundance of having the money in the first place. And then you're saying this translates and bleeds over into how we give. And I love how you said that idea that many people can get stuck on that. Well, if I don't feel good about the money that I have and I need to scrimp or I need to feel that I need uh, that I can't enjoy it well, then nobody should enjoy it well. And even though I'm doing this good or I have this idea that I want to do good, I'm preventing it from doing the most good because I also think everyone else should feel guilty about having money, which then translates over into that, well, they shouldn't have a high overhead and they shouldn't they sh- they should have every single um, donor dollar go straight to the cause, which then prevents them from being a sustainable, nonprofit organization. I just love how you shared that and unpacked that that piece at the core and really highlighted the problem of scarcity that originates in the donor's mind in the first place. I, I would say though, you you are uh, working, I mean, business owners um, produce a lot of wealth in in in, a, in any country, but a lot of wealth in this country. And you all you also are looking at and the reason they reason that they do produce a lot of wealth is they're always looking at making systems better and and they do see it in effectiveness and so they're going to look at they're going to look at the not the the, the not-for-profit um and and say hey are you are you maximizing this money so some of it is probably legitimate and chris the reason i'm saying that is you know i've actually been on the chairman of the arthritis foundation and i've and i've seen some of this stuff you know uh, that i had to deal with from the corporate level, not the necessarily the local level, but the corporate level. 
And it is very, very frustrating for the not only the volunteers, but the people that are giving the money because they don't they don't a lot of these corporations and I probably, you know, maybe I threw the arthritis foundation under the bus right now, but um, it, it's just re- I'm just telling the truth. Maybe they don't see themselves as a business um, and they do need to work on an effectiveness. The other thing I've noticed, and, and I'd like to get your perspective on, there's a lot of turnover in these particular not-for-profit organizations. And probably a lot of it is due to the fact that uh, the lower levels are not paid well enough to, and are not appreciated by the the upper levels. And there's a lot of pressure put on them that, that I saw over and over. And they had the, they had their own ways of thinking about things and they don't even, they're not even down on the, they only have the boots on the ground where the money's actually raised. And it's very, very frustrating. So do you, do you see that lack of effectiveness and you, do you see a lot of that turnover that is causing a lot of these problems? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's definitely turnover, especially when you have, as you mentioned, Bruce, you know, if you're not paying your staff well enough, if they're if they're cutting back on any kind of professional development, if there's very poor benefits, you know, I mean, I'm working with a, a nonprofit right now. The leader has been in place for 40 years. He's in his 70s and there's been no retirement savings. You know, there's no, there's nothing. So he's retiring with nothing. After put after like growing a nonprofit organization, and it's kind of the scarcity mindset where he's, you know, getting funds for this program and that program and trying to help as many people as he can, but you know, not investing in himself and the organization and the, the funders that are funding him are not supporting him to do that either. And it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge because, you know, as you know, as any business owner knows, you know, staff turnover. Is expensive, you know, mm-hmm. and estimates vary, but let's just say it's at least the cost of the salary of the person to mm-hmm. hire the next person in terms of low productivity in the organization, in terms of morale, in terms of actually searching, in terms of the burden of that person who's now left all of their job gets dumped on other people, all of that, right? And so it's expensive and, you know, it's it, it makes it hard to recruit people into the nonprofit sector, kind of that pipeline. Because if we're not going to invest in the appropriate salaries and the capacity of these organizations to be successful. And to me, I think it's just like, you know, just like a business owner. I mean, it's funny, you know, my um, my grandparents started a charitable trust. And so it's very small. And now the cousins of who, which is my level of the family, uh, the generations are in charge. And so every year we get together and figure out how to give it away. And one of my cousins is a, a entrepreneur. And he had the same kind of reaction to a nonprofit. Well, let's give all the money. You know, one of the great things about this nonprofit, he said, is, you know, 99 cents of every dollar goes to help the people and only one cent goes for overhead. And I said, Bob, my cousin, like, is that how you invest in your business? You know, do you only allow one cent of every dollar to go to pay your staff salaries, like to go to pay for your own business development? Uh, improvements in technology, improvements in equipment. And then he laughed because of course not, you know? And so, you know, why are we asking a nonprofit who's, you know, trying to save people's lives? Why are you asking them to do the same thing? And so, yeah, I don't know that staff turnover is higher in the nonprofit sector than it is in the for-profit sector, but it certainly is an issue. 
I think that's just very, very fascinating. Um, the idea that a we should treat a nonprofit or mentally have a construct of a nonprofit's financial management within the organization at least as effectively managed as a for-profit organization. And I think that can even just help us to conceptualize the sustainability of a nonprofit organization, which is specifically intended to serve a cause and to benefit the world specifically. So this is just a fascinating conversation. So let's continue on with kind of going down that path a little bit of what are some of the other ways that um, philanthropists get in their own way and are not able to achieve that true transformation and change that they're looking for so that they can figure out how to fix those problems and give better. Yeah, well, the second delusion that I mentioned in the book is fear and feeling fearful. And I think fear really is the primary cause of the scarcity mindset. And there's lots of different ways that funders feel fearful, uh, which, you know, might surprise you again, because you assume that the the donor is, you know, wealthy and with wealth should come, you know, confidence um, and a lack of fear. But it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, one of them is like a fear of, I say, like being out and about. And by that, I mean, like being out in your community. So I talk with one donor who, you know, her husband, um, like I mentioned before, you know, sold his business and suddenly they had more money than they ever thought they could possibly have in their life and became instant, you know, hundred millionaires. Um, and it changed the woman's life. Like it, it changed her relationship with her husband. It changed her relationship with her friends. It caused her a lot of stress because suddenly people were looking at her differently. And literally she felt fearful going into the grocery store mm -hmm. and running into people because now suddenly people that she had, you know, kind of friendships with were asking her for donations mm -hmm. and asking for help and expecting her to do things that she wasn't prepared to do. So there's a fear of like how people, how it will change how others think of you and expectations that you might not be ready for. Another fear is a fear of kind of coming out, if you will, in support of a particular cause or issue, mm. um, because you might fear the backlash of, of what um, people, others who disagree with you might be thinking. And, you know, <laughs> we can all think of like controversial issues, but even things that seem non-controversial, like you might remember when um, uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire in yes, Paris yes. a number of mm -hmm. years ago. Well, there are quite a few like billionaire families that kind of came out of the woodwork, had not really been philanthropic before, but you know, provided you know massive, massive donations to help rebuild the cathedral. That seems like a good cause, you know. Who doesn't agree with that? Well, a lot of people disagree. <laughs> And there was huge backlash, you know, on social media and articles and whatnot, like how, you know, why do you care about cathedrals and not mosques and synagogues? Why do you care about supporting this church when people are dying of hunger, when mm -hmm. migrants are, you know, drowning, trying to, you know, flee to safety, when, you know, X, Y, Z problem in the world, right? Mm -hmm. how, that kind of this, how dare you? And, you know, I think that's problematic because my gosh, you know, if, you know, if you have a donor that's willing to give, let's embrace that new, you know, that they're exercising their philanthropic muscles and like help them do that more and help them figure out, you know, there might be other issues and causes they care about. Um, and, but instead, if you kind of disparage folks, then 
it's going to send them, you know, they'll feel fearful and then they'll kind of go into hiding. And you know, so- I, I don't have personal experience with exactly what you're saying, but I did hear someone talking. I'm not going to share their name, but it was this idea that they shared something. They were out eating at a restaurant with their children and somebody said, how dare you, um, you know, you're eating with these styrofoam plates and silverware that are going to fill landfills and contribute to, um, you know, global warming. And you should be much more thinking about sustainability for a person of your wealth. And so it was this, Hey, I'm creating this amazing experience with my family, or I'm investing in their lives. And, and there was all this, I mean, you could say haters, trolls, whatever, looking at that and finding a reason to criticize. And I think what can be beneath that is we all have causes that we are um, have a propensity to want to support or things that are valuable to us. And I think what you're saying and what I heard from that story as well was that just because it's your the thing that you value doesn't mean everyone else will value the same thing, but we all have a different uniqueness in the way that we contribute to the world. And I'm hearing you say, let's support each other's giving desires instead of cutting them off at the knees because it's not our cause. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we live in a democracy, so we all have a beautiful right to disagree with each other, Mm -hmm. which is great. But I think to really disparage people when they're trying to make a difference, um, you know, we need more people being philanthropic, not less. And so Mm -hmm. I think the more we can do to support people and and not just in their giving, but in also in their understanding. I mean, this is a lot of the work that I do as a philanthropy advisor and coach is help my clients get clarity on, you know, well, what issues do we care about? You know, maybe, you know, sometimes we don't really know. We haven't taken the time to really think about it. We've just funded things because our, you know, because Bruce was on the Arthritis Foundation and said, hey, could you contribute to this cause or our gala or our bikeathon or whatever it is? And we say, sure. And so sometimes we just have kind of this, we sort of stumble through our giving based on what's presented to us, the appeals that arrive at our doorstep. But uh, often people haven't had a chance to really reflect and think as as an individual or as a couple or as a family or a business, you know, what are the issues that I really care about? Um, And what's meaningful to me? I was just meeting with a a family, uh, uh, it's a family owned business. I'm not going to mention the name, but everyone I'm sure would know. And I was at their family meeting facilitating um, some conversations around how they can form a family foundation. And one of the things we talked about was that there's lots of different ways to think about what's important to you. It could be a cause like, you know, mental health, and you want to really support mental health because you've experienced mental health challenges in your family, or you just recognize it's a problem. Another way to approach it, and that's what this person's perspective was, was he really believed in leadership. Like he Mm -hmm. wanted to bet on really great nonprofit leaders that were making a difference and help them to grow and scale their work. And to him, it was less important if they were focusing on arthritis or mental health or domestic violence, you know, it was long as it was a cause he could somehow care about his lens was more on the leadership. Mm, and so there's all kinds of ways to really help people. But, you know, I think that's part of the challenge is, you know, not always knowing what's the, what's the issues that are most meaningful to you and then how to give, on those areas? How do you find what the needs are? How do you find the right nonprofits? How do you even find partners that could, you know, kind of leverage your funding so that collectively you can create a greater impact? Well, I think that's just really fascinating. I'm 
in this work right now of helping families to create a mission and vision and their values for the family to Mm -hmm. be able then to create a legacy that lasts through multiple generations. And what's unique and interesting about that is that if you can first be self-aware enough to figure out what are my own values, then you can look at what are the values with myself and my family? What, what is, are the values of our family? What are then the values of our organization or our business that we're running? And then how do we align our values with the values of a charitable organization that we're partnering with or funding? And so it's just interesting to um, see that at the root of doing the most good, we have to first understand what do we truly value. And I love that you're saying that that's really important. It's not just saying, you know, which organization is the best organization to fund or which one is the most, um, has the, um, you know, the most dollars going towards the cause, but really it, it has to align with your value system, which then has the ability to have other people disagree with you. And I think just being successful in business requires courage to stand on your own values, but then also giving and being a philanthropist in any regard requires a lot of courage to be in alignment and in an integrity with your own value system. Yeah, I love that. And, um, and that's absolutely right. And I think having clarity on a family's mission and their values and thinking about, you know, multi-generations, like how do we maintain this across generations is really foundational for family philanthropy. And I always work with my clients in the similar way to help them clarify those values and that mission first because that's really the foundation for the giving. I mean, it's the foundation for everything really in the family, but for the philanthropic piece. Um, and, you know, to me, that's really the, the opposite of a scarcity mindset. It's really the abundance mindset, meaning that family took the time to really think about what is our mission? What are our values? Like you, you don't just come up with that over dinner one night, mm-hmm. but you really need to think about that. And they also invested, you know, resources in someone like yourself or in someone like me. It doesn't have to be a lot, but sometimes you need that outside perspective to help you think through and clarify what is, what are those values? What is that mission? And then what do you do with that? You know, how do you operationalize that? And then to your point, exactly. Once you have clarity on that and you're living in integrity, you're living those values, you're making decisions on those values. Then if there are people who disagree with you or criticize you, like if they show up, it's a lot easier to like not worry about them, right? Because Mm -hmm. you have clarity. This is why we exist as a family. These are our values. And therefore, this is why we give, or this is why we've invested this way, or this is why we've made these choices. You understand that Mm -hmm. and you're living it. And so it's a lot easier to explain to others or simply just not even worry about what other people are saying or thinking. Or or not even justify to yourself, but to have the congruence inside of yourself to know that you don't have to listen to every single voice that is outside of you because you have that own pillar that's strong inside of yourself. So, so, so as we go down the next, um, we actually had somebody on the podcast one time that had a podcast of how to lose money. Mm -hmm. And, um, if the basic premise was, is that, you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs have actually, uh, lost a lot of money until they got it right. Well, you, you have a part in your book, uh, uh, you ask the wrong questions. So what are some of those wrong questions and why is it important to understand that you, you're asking the wrong questions? Yeah, this is a great um, challenge really that many funders and quite frankly, business owners experience as well. 
is, you know, questions are really powerful. And I think if you ask the right questions, they send you down the right path. And if you ask the wrong questions, they send you down the wrong path. And one of the questions that I think people ask, and it's really about ordering them, is they ask how to do something before they ask themselves what it is they're trying to accomplish. And really what that means is they're focused on the tactics of doing something before they're thinking through the strategy. So, you know, you can't possibly know how you want to go about doing something unless you have clarity on your objective, unless you have clarity on what it is you're trying to accomplish. But too often people get stuck in those tactics. In fact, I was just facilitating strategic planning for a family foundation a few weeks ago. And that's exactly where this family was. The family foundation has been around for like 60 years, but they found themselves kind of stuck and not really doing anything. And with new staff and new board, they were kind of jumping to tactics. Like it's a foundation that focuses on health and mental health and nutrition. So they were talking about, well, we need to get on social media to get the word out. So should we be on Twitter or Facebook? Mm-hmm. Well, we need to, um, you know, maybe let's do a health fair. My friend just did a great bikeathon. They raised lots of money for cancer research. Maybe we should do a bikeathon. <laughs> and I, I said, stop, like you have to stop. Like, those aren't bad things, right? I'm not opposed to Twitter or a bikeathon, but to what end? Like, mm-hmm. what exactly are you trying to accomplish with your philanthropy? What is your 10-year vision, uh, your one-year strategy? And then, and then think about what are the right tactics mm-hmm. to get there. So you can't possibly decide if I should be on Facebook or Twitter unless you have clarity on what you're trying to accomplish, who your audience is, like who you're trying to reach, what are you trying to get them to do? And then what's the best way to communicate that to them? It might not be social media. Mm-hmm. It might be picking up the phone and calling them, or it could be convening them or whatever it could be. And so I think too often in philanthropy, you know, funders don't, you know, they, you know, getting that clarity and the mission, you know, as part of the what, but also, you know, what's our strategy? What are we trying to accomplish in the next year, two, three years? And only then look at where you are today And then how to get from where you are today to where you want to be. What are the two or three things, those hows, uh, to to move you as quickly as possible to where you're going? And to me, that's, um, you know, getting getting that out of order is one of the biggest challenges that I see most donors making. I love that you bring that up. And I think that's applicable to every area in business. I mean, I'm sure if you're an entrepreneur right now and you're asking, should I be on Twitter? Should I be on Facebook? Should I do YouTube ads? Those are, again, the wrong questions. You need to really, again, I mean, it's in writing a book. Uh, I have experience with this as well as I'm getting ready to release my book. Um, It's in business and it's in your own family and it's in your philanthropy, this idea of what are we wanting to accomplish before the tactics? I'll also even bring this over to the, the financial sphere because a lot of times you'll hear in the financial space, oh, I want this stock or I want to go invest with this particular company. Or I've heard that um, you know real estate is the, the place to be. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into real estate. And they don't even know which of the 47,000 different ways to invest in real estate that they're interested in. They just say, oh, real estate is the thing. And what's really interesting is that tactics before strategy never works. And I would say even before strategy, we talk about meeting principles first and having a principle, which you've already brought that up, this whole having a value system and knowing what you truly believe in. So that would be equatable to the principles. And when that comes to your money 
instead of just saying, oh, I, I hear that I should put my money into a Roth IRA versus a 401k, or I should you know, start a SEP, or I should have a um, solo 401k. Instead of thinking about those things, let's back up one step to what are we trying to accomplish? That's the, the um, we need to understand the strategy first, but we need the principles even before that to say, I want control of my capital. Okay, so what's going to help me have control? What's going to help me increase my cash flow? And so we start at the money advantage with any person who comes to us instead of saying, here's the right tactic for you, here's the right product for you. We start by first looking at your entire financial picture and saying, where is your money now? What are you trying to accomplish? What are your end goals? And how can we help you achieve those more effectively? And so I think that same idea is applicable in any space and will help you get tremendous clarity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think that's exactly right what you're doing. And it's the same exact approach with philanthropy. What are you trying to accomplish? Where are you and how do you get there? I just mentioned I was um, at this meeting, a family meeting of this family business, which, you know, is going to be a billion dollar business soon. And uh, they were reviewing for the family, their business strategy for the next few years. And it was, you know, kind of what are their goals? You know, what are their, the three way, you know, main approaches to achieve those goals? And what are the, you know, two or three actions they're going to take to accomplish that? And I paused them and I said, just so you know, I said, this is great. And just so you know, you could use this exact same approach in your philanthropic giving. And it was a big aha for them because they understood business strategy. And so to simply say it's, you know, philanthropy is a lot like this. You're just thinking about what are my philanthropic goals and how do I best achieve them? Hmm, that's excellent. Um, we have so many more places that we could go in this conversation. I know we have about um, eight minutes or so until we wrap up here. What would you share, Chris, is the most important thing if you kind of boiled everything down from your book? I know we've only hit on a few of the delusions of altruism. I think you have seven in the book. We might have covered maybe two today. We've asked maybe or talked about one of the wrong questions that often is asked, and we've talked about the right question that needs to be asked instead. If you kind of boiled everything down, maybe it's something you've already touched on, maybe it's something else. What is the most important thing really at the core that somebody needs to know or understand maybe differently than they already do about how to truly be transformational in their giving? Well, I'll share two things if I can. Uh, The first very briefly is just recognizing that as a donor, you have more to give than money. And Mm. whoever you are, if you're ultra high net worth or you're an average, you know, small business owner or anyone in between, it's not just wealth. You also have your expertise. You have your volunteer time. You also have like your ties and your communicate, your contacts, the people, you know, who can you open doors for? I mean, thinking back on when COVID hit and everyone was scrambling to figure out what is a PPP loan and the EIDL and all these things. Well, a lot of nonprofits were scrambling because they didn't really have a banking relationship. They might've had a bank account, but not a banker to talk to, right? And all you had was an 800 number to call. And it was very overwhelming. And some of these groups had, you know, less than 90 days of cash on hand, often less than 30 days of cash on hand. So as a business owner or as a person to be able to work with, if you have a nonprofit you're supporting and say, hey, let me introduce you to my banker so you can have a conversation about the PPP, what that means, how you apply, what, what the risk is, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's huge and it costs nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think just thinking about bringing your whole self is part of being transformational. The second thing I'll say is, and this gets back to strategy, but especially during this time we're living in, you know, we're still, it's still a pandemic and there's, you know, 
in the beginning of this decade, there's been a lot of change and it feels like conditions are continuously changing and um, we can't predict the future. But the reality is you can never predict the future. The future is always uncertain and disruption and volatility are kind of our new status quo. We just have, this is it. And so to me, and that can be paralyzing for anyone, for a philanthropist, for a business owner, because you think, well, how can I possibly plan ahead for the next year? Because things are going to change so much. What's the point, right? And and donors do this too. I'm not going to, I'm not going to plan. I'm not going to develop my strategy. I'm not going to give. I'm just going to hang tight till this is all over, right? Well, it's never going to be all over and it's always going to change. And so to me, it's really having a shift in mindset around strategy and planning. And the mindset shift is instead of letting that unknown future paralyze you to really let it free you because we can never plan for every contingency. So don't try. And instead kind of have the mindset of, you know, yes, create a plan you can count on for maybe the next year, begin implementing that plan right away. You know, where am I today? What do I need to do to get to where I want to be a year from now? What are those three things? Begin doing those three things like tomorrow with the confidence that you can make course corrections along the way because you're going to have to and like literally building that time in. So you kind of always have this cadence of planning ahead, implementing what you think is most important to focus on, making course corrections, kind of redoing your strategy and going forward. And there's a resource I'll share with you that might be of interest to your um, listeners. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. Hmm. It's a free download. You can go to eightthings.org and download it. And it's just a simple guide to really get you in that mindset of, you know, kind of recalibrating your timeline and your, and your, and your thinking, creating a plan, a strategic plan, a communications plan, a business plan, whatever it is, plan your wedding. And, uh, but, you know, to, to do that quickly and nimbly with agility and make those changes that you need to, um, and have that confidence so that you aren't sitting on the sidelines you're getting things done, what you think is the most important thing to focus on with the confidence that you can change as you go. Chris, that is beautiful. And I think super applicable to any space as well. So I'm at the end before we close today, I'll make sure that I get that link again, and then how people can find you. But what I think is really interesting is that you're talking about how to make a difference in a changing world that we can't control. And yet we want to have as much control as possible, especially financially. And the control that you have has more to do with where is your money sitting so that you can access it, so you can count on it being there for you to use that capital when you need to. And that can be applicable whether you're a nonprofit or whether you are the philanthropist or whether you're the business owner who's contributing to the philanthropy and the causes, the charitable causes. What's really interesting is that everything does change. And we talk about as well, making sure that somebody has their finances set up so that they're in the best case scenario in the widest range of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a chess player. I, sh- I should be. I-, I would love to understand and be able to play chess. But the idea is that you want to be positioned best so that whatever happens, because you can't control what the other person is going to do, but whatever they do, you have the most options and that you're in the strongest position. And I think that I'm hearing some connections over into what you're sharing as well, because that allows you to, yes, have an end plan in mind, but you're also incrementally planning along the way and recognizing that you're going to change. You're not just saying, here's my one track that's going to go for the next 50 years, but you're saying, here's where I ultimately want to go, which Bruce, that's really congruent with what Dan Sullivan talks about having this long vision. And Bruce, I think you're muted. 
having this long vision and then um, planning incrementally or walking it through step by step. And Bruce, I was actually going to ask you if you could um, just share kind of how um, working as a family office model helps our clients to to be able to do that, to be prepared in the widest range of circumstances. Yeah, I was just I was just going to say that uh, I was actually thinking of Dan Sullivan too, because Dan says have a twenty five year vision, but implement that vision over ninety days, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, that that way you can you can make changes. Um, one of the things that um, many high wealth uh, individuals they do participate in what's called a family office. We actually try to do a family office model, and a model simply meaning that we provide the same type of resources. Uh, to each and every one of our clients that that don't have quite enough net worth to have their own personal fam, finan, uh, family office. And what this allows people to do is make sure nothing slips through the cracks because for every dollar they can uh, save, it's another dollar that they can uh, invest or give away um, into the future. And the other thing that we we provide is legacy planning to actually make sure that you were talking to Chris earlier, that um, scarcity mindset, like if I'm giving and it doesn't go well, then all of a sudden now part of my wealth is poof, it's gone forever. So one of the ways we try to alleviate that is is having uh, a safety net of well-designed, specially designed life insurance uh, contracts that can actually refill the buckets back up in case things don't go well. And all these give individuals a sense of a security that not only can I not make a mistake and I can fill the bucket back up, but if the mm-hmm. foundation or the charity is patient, they will get even more donations into the future. And this is the part I've noticed with, with foundations and charities that they say, well, no, I need, all, I need all that money now. I don't want them to be putting any money into well-designed life insurance contracts that can go into the future. But actually, if you do well-designed ones, you can actually have part of that uh, as a contribution from the cash value and then get more later on. So this is a concept that is very, what I've noticed is very um, lost in the translation with a lot of these foundations and and charities. So um, the family office model is really, really helpful to try to make sure everybody's successful. Well, that seems so important too, because you know, because we can't predict the future, we don't know what crises and issues are going to be coming down the pike. And so, to have that consistent funding and that funding over time is really important. So that you know, not just some initial funding now, but initial uh, support down the road, because there's going to be other problems and issues and challenges and opportunities that nonprofits are going to need resources for. And I think that just ties into having that long range vision as well. And now I just realized that I um, blew past our timeline here. So we are going to go ahead and wrap up before we do, Chris, how can our listeners find you, get your book? And um, I'll just share quickly as well, again, that eight things.org, but tell them how they can find you directly and your book. Yeah, well, they can find me directly either at eight things.org that will link to my website as well. So that's again, downloading that free guide, eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world, even when the world keeps changing. And the book is at delusionalaltruism.com. Again, that's a page on my website. So both of those, if you want to buy the book or download the guide and go to 8things.org or delusionalaltruism.com, then you'll be able to find me, my email and all my uh, social media uh, accounts as well. 
Excellent. Well, Chris, this has been a fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us here at The Money Advantage. And we really look forward to just helping, uh, just seeing where this goes in the future and just seeing how we can continue to partner and share ideas together. I think this is just fabulous for our audience. So thank you so much if you're listening for being on the show and for um, tuning in today. And I will tell you in closing, as we always do, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.